You're listening to Death of the Reader. Here on 2SER, we are Flex and Herds. It is your murder mystery world tour. We are covering Money in the Morgue by Nio Marsh and Stella Duffy. It is the last episode. We are talking all the way up to the final 37th chapter in this story. What a monster, Herds. This was a really fantastic ride. And yeah, 37 chapters. I tried to go as light as I could in the first two parts, but really got to gun it to the end to wrap this whole thing up. Yeah. It is a monster of a story, and it doesn't even really get fully wrapped up by the end, which is interesting. You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's fantastic. I am a little disappointed that I... Really? I think, I think I'm going to be walking away with both points we had promised oh, here. no. You get all the points. Dude. Okay, you, good. You nailed yeah. it. You nailed it by the end. I'm proud of that, but I'm also a little disappointed that everything I said was right because no. I felt it was a little too far-fetched. No. It was... <laughs> Well, this is the thing. That's why I was like cackling completely last week as you were saying your theory of like, how could it possibly be that the matron and the vicar, who both seem to be wonderful people, have have tried to steal the money for for like rebuilding the hospital or whatever? Like, what yeah. is their plan here? I felt how does any of that even like how does that work? I felt phenomenal vindication yes. at uh, Roderick Allen sitting down and basically saying the exact same things yes. that I did about it is what how mm. how is nobody going to notice where they got all of this money from? Yes. Why are they doing this? They're just nice people, but they're very stupid. They're very stupid. They are. Yeah, it was great fun. That's the twist of this novel is that, of course, there are two crimes going on. One being perpetrated by actual criminals, uh-huh. mostly, and the other being, you know, committed by a, just a couple of couple of idiots. Uh, and honestly, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, it is definitely a great fun read. Yeah. I was not disappointed in terms of the actual reading experience of the book. Mm. But the further I got towards the ending, I was like, oh, no, just... Just slow down. Like, <laughs> even right at the start of, you know, chapter 24, where they're talking about the whole, you know, lemonades, like, spirit switch out. Debacle, yeah. It's like, oh, just. That said, it, like, that was foreshadowed very well. There oh, is, yeah, yeah, there yeah. is a paragraph that's literally like, you know, the, the porter was known for being a very heavy drinker of lemonade, but even the slightest bit of rum or whiskey will put him right out. Yeah. Like, they set that up perfectly. I, I could definitely see it coming from a mile away, that particular mm. reveal, but it was kind of like just the goofiness of, oh, he had one sip of the spirits in his lemonade and he was out, and that's how nope. they swapped the corpses. Like, I it's knew perfect. I knew the roller coaster was about to start going downhill once we'd hit that point. Will, Will Kelly is a bit of an outlier in the cast, yeah. uh, which we'll, we'll talk about. It's a thorough detail. We talk about love in the story, mm-hmm. but... He is a character who is technically a suspect. Yes. And by virtue of carrying the, you know, fake corpse Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the first act should really be suspected more than he is. But he's out for so much of the novel that he doesn't really get proper, like, characterization. Like, he gets less than even Mr. Glossop. It's fantastic. I was was a little concerned with that moment way back at the start that Mm. it felt to me like the book was leading to being somewhat farcical because, like, that whole scene was very, very over the top (laughs) And there are a lot of moments, particularly early in the story, where it does get kind of theatrical. And that's not necessarily a detriment to the story, but I think particularly looking at how this book wraps up with, you know, the the tackling of Porset in the tunnel and the matron stepping through like some ghostly figure from the hole in the wall. Like, you know, 
it the book is walking a very fine line of getting just whimsically theatrical. Well, even the character of the the matron and the vicar, the way that they respond to Alan's questions, I pictured them in my mind kind of laughing and smiling and like, oh, well, of course we were planning on returning the money and, you know, financing the hospital to make it like, of course we were. Why was our, you know, guilt ever in question? We're not bad people. Like they're just totally oblivious characters. Um, but I think that's, I mean, that's that's something that pays tribute to Naya Marsh's yeah. theatrical background and everything mm-hmm. that she was, you know, writing for. Um, and obviously it's very prevalent in the story itself. Alan is constantly making references to Midsummer Night's Dream in particular, yeah. um, but various, you know, plays of theatrical nature. Mm. And it is very much that idea, like in Midsummer Night's Dream, like these characters from like the real world end up in like the fairy world. Yeah. Um, it's very much that idea of like, uh, blending something that's on the edge of our imagination. Something that's on the edge of what we would consider to be reasonable mm-hmm. and fair um, with something that is very real, which is kind of how the the World War II plot, which is a very real, you know, war that occurred, uh, is married with this, like, kind of silly, yeah. uh, I would call Three Stooges routine. Very much so. <laughs> between the major and the vicar. Yeah, right? I think I think the other thing that... And the porter. ...kind of concerned me about it was mm. that, you know, obviously... There, there is a very serious story going on with very serious yes. implications, very serious context, yep. kind of juxtaposed with this goofy, lighthearted Three Stooges Midsummer Night's Dream thing. And I, I kind of liked that balance. Yeah, I thought that the balance of those two on their own was all right. Yeah. I think the the problem that I had when I was reading it is that I kept, you know, as I was reading, asking myself, is this getting too silly? And the That's, fact that I was asking that question is to me the problem. Maybe. Like, if it had been silly and I wasn't asking myself, I probably would have been okay with it. But it was just like the fact that that active thought kept coming to my mind. Mm. I'm not sure whether that's the book's fault or mine, but I think that, you know, maybe that speaks to me that that balance wasn't quite as right as I, you know, would say it was analytically. Maybe. I think that the uh, the moment that actually sticks out the most to me, because as I said, the World War II plot is not that well fleshed out. Yeah. We don't really learn anything about Duncan Blakey, who I suspect you're only pinned at the end of last episode because he's part the of the dramatic persona. Yes. The dramatic persona, which I was harping on a bit too much last. Yes, you it, definitely. It doesn't matter. Were. Doesn't matter. Point is, it's important. Um, theater conventions, guys, they're important. Um, but the the moment that I think most defines that half of the story is actually with Sidney Brown when he's in the caves um, and presumably has, you know, found the corpse of his grandfather again. And mm-hmm. he's standing like about to jump into this deep, dark hole and commit suicide. Um, like up until this point, there's been a lot of drama yeah. and love triangles and like maybe there's spies or whatever, like very no crime in the mountains. Mm-hmm. But that's the moment where we have this young guy, like I'm going to go to jail for a crime that I committed and that I admitted yeah. to committing. Maybe I should just end it all. And it's like, it's such a mood whiplash of it a really moment. Is. Like even dealing with Duncan Blakey and mm-hmm. Bob Horsett, it's like kind of comical. Yeah. Um, and we don't really dwell too much on that. But that moment there, I would love to know what she was thinking, putting that scene in because it's a very yeah. powerful scene mm. but it is perhaps the most out of place yeah. in the novel and I think I think that's probably the main reason I kept asking myself that question was the whiplash yeah. because the book is so good at doing things like at the end of uh, the end of the last section we covered in chapter 23 there's mm. this beautiful moment with Sarah Warren where you know Roderick Allen's like you know don't worry especially not with suspects who are also um, you know who are also witnesses I, I wouldn't get angry with you and then ends that scene with getting angry with her yes, yes. and you know it's very human you know mm. it's a very very human moment and 
I, the, the thing that gave me whiplash, though, was he got angry with her, and Sarah Warne's reaction is, you know what? He's right. I am an idiot. <laughs> I am the worst. Yeah, it, it yeah. was. It felt surprisingly one-dimensional. Mm. And, you know, I think that given the task that this book gave itself of trying to adapt a decades-old novel yes. with decades-old contexts by a modern writer, it has done a phenomenal job at creating a book that is just fun to read, but I do think that mm. it is far from perfect. I know. I, I just feel like the the back and forth of the characters between each other, and particularly Alan's method of uh, moving through the psychology of things, the reveal of sister comfort, which is something that I I was kind of hoping you would pick up. I on. It was, was not very disappointed it was, it was when it not, happened. It was not required for points, but I was like, what about oh. sister comfort though? Why would I have left her out of the the second part it of the was, novel? It was so clever. <laughs> it was genuinely I I one of my favorite puzzle-based moments of the entire yeah. book of that reveal where she just walks in and yes, is like, yes. so, Alan. <laughs> Let me give you my report. Like, <laughs> so how do good. we deal with this? <laughs> uh, yeah. This is a phenomenal book, and I absolutely love the experience of reading it. But you should read it knowing that it is far from perfect, and the yeah. things that make it far from perfect are so enjoyable to, like, look at yeah, and go, sure. that's goofy, and uh, mm -hmm. it's... We'll obviously, I've said last week on the show, we're going to cover another Nio Marsh novel, a purely Nio Marsh novel to kind of compare the two. But I think just before we even get there, the way that Stella Duffy has carried this story through so that the ending feels cohesive with the beginning yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, Stella Duffy has done an excellent job of kind of carrying forward that torch and finishing off something that was started, you know, like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Damn, that is an impressive feat. All righty. Well, you are listening to Death of the Reader. That was our thoughts on the story mm. of Money in the Morgue by Stella Duffy and Nio Marsh. We will be back shortly, later on in the show, discussing the puzzle, what we thought of it, and Herds' alleged solution for it's it. It's going to be great. I'm ready. This is the most me thing I've ever done on the show. I'm very I'm, I'm in. I'm in. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. This is Flex and Herds. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We are talking Stella Duffy and Nio Marsh's Money in the Morgue is our final episode. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Jamie Bernthal Hooker, panel tutor at Cambridge University and Golden Age expert on the line to talk about this story. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hello. So, Jamie, you're well read and I know you have a passion for Agatha Christie's writings in particular. What are the challenges in adapting a golden age murder mystery like Money in the Morgue to the modern era? Uh, there are a great many challenges. The most obvious one being that the modern writer and the original writer are going to have very different approaches to the world and very different fan bases. They also just wrote in completely different eras. So the era that Nia Marsh wrote in is very much not the same as the world that Bella Duffy's writing in. Mm. So she had that completely unenviable task of trying to write something that is authentically appealing to people who love Nia Marsh's work and also something that's completely sellable in a modern context. Yeah. 
It's clear that gender is uh, important to the queens of crime, um, most notably being central to Agatha Christie's mysteries. And in Money in the Morgue, of course, there is a, a clear kind of commentary being written to separate the two halves of the of the camp or the hospital that the story is set in, um, with many of the males, aside from Elaine, uh, most notably, being portrayed in a more incompetent light than their female counterparts. Uh, Mr. Glossop in particular stands out to me uh, as an expression of, I would say, impotent male rage. Um, what sort of patterns have you observed in regards to, to gender in crime fiction, Jamie? The golden age of crime is largely considered to be a very female form. Uh, so we talk about the queens of crime, uh, Christia Nia Marsh, but also Marjorie Allingham and uh, Josephine Tay. And we talk about golden age crime being particularly domestic uh, and relying on feminine modes of knowledge rather than hard violence and masculine tropes where in the drawing room we're looking at the psychology, we're looking at how people interact with each other and listening to what people say, which are all not traditionally things men are great at. So in many ways, it's often considered a a feminine genre. Golden Age writers weren't consciously trying to look at gendered issues in the way that uh, modern writers are now. So one of the tasks of a continuation writer is to look at some of the issues we're more interested in today in a way that doesn't seem out of context with the older texts. And gender is perhaps one of the one of the ways to really dig into that because it is an issue that's always, sadly, always going to be there. Mm. Uh, Jamie, I know you have a background in, in queer theory, actually. Can you tell us about how uh, homosexuality is, is subtly expressed in Solidarity's resurrection of an unfinished work uh, that itself is a, a product of its time? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, now I'm asking kind of troubling from a, a, a queer perspective uh, in that she's quite virulently homophobic in some of her work. Uh, it's very much a product of her time, but her hero, Inspector Allen, often proves his manliness by being quite homophobic. The unenviable task of Stella Duffy is to resurrect this character while also not being homophobic, something she definitely wouldn't want to do. So she's very interesting here because she's managed to get a discussion of uh, homosexuality into the book in a very subtle way, I think, quite near the end. And what she does brilliantly is um, connect the judgment with very negative characters. So it's very bad people who are judging homosexuality. Uh, I think that's quite interesting when you actually compare Alan's role, who in other Naya Marsh works, in my experience, beyond being homophobic, is also a bit more emotionally disconnected from the cast, whereas in Money in the Morgue, mm-hmm. he seems more emotionally engaged with the suspects, almost taking on a therapist-like role, which you seem to think is the hand yeah. of Stella Duffy shining through, it seems. Yes, definitely. One thing that's always interesting, of course, is about, what, five, ten years ago, um, Stella Duffy hated Roderick Allen. She, she really couldn't stand the character, and it's only quite recently that uh, she's come round to really seeing the great value of Marsh, and that's largely about the um, the attention Marsh pays to New Zealand and to Maori people. So I don't think Alan is ever going to be Duffy's favourite character. Mm. Um, it's also probably the hardest detective to ever have to bring back, because at least with someone like Gabriel Poirot, you've got the sensitivity. With characters like uh, Sherlock Holmes, you know, you can go in one of two ways. You can go the the uh, Sherlock route of playing him as a quite trendy um, functional character, or you can do the manly thing. But um, Roderick Allen is very much completely a product of his time. So 
what Duffy seems to have done is taken a step back, which is much more useful to put the emotions of the story central rather than the actual hero character. And it does seem to work. The book's very popular. I did notice that during the story, Alan doesn't appear until you know, a third of the way through the story in the first place. And then most of his time on screen is spent highlighting other characters, which seems to be very intentional based on your, your insight there. Um, do you think that Ellen's uh, characteristic kind of masculinity is, is carried through well? Do you think that the spirit of, of Naya Marsh's, you know, you know, prime detective is, is still intact? Or uh, do you think that it's suffered from trying to, you know, recreate him in a sense in Solidify's eyes? I think there's a very great deal of Naya Marsh in this book. And it's an absolute pleasure to read, especially uh, in the discussions of New Zealand um, and the landscape and the, the area and the space. And that's where the, the homage really shines. Uh, the Alan character isn't necessarily the focus as much as some fans would like, but really quite a quite a tricky character to write about. A, a character who, if he'd gone straight to the page in the way he was written then, if he'd been written that way now, the author would not be receiving an easy ride. Yeah. It, it would not go down well, however much uh, some purist fans Mm-hmm. want to see exactly what they've had before. It, it's just not acceptable anymore. By today's standards, he's racist, he's homophobic, he's incredibly camp, <laughs> which mm. is something yeah. that we don't necessarily want from our straight male heroes anymore. It's yeah. huge fun. Yeah, uh, Jamie, most of your work revolves around the, the queen of the queens of crime, uh, Agatha Christie. Uh, what are the most kind of interesting comparisons between Naira Marsh's work and, and Christie that you've noticed in your in your research, Jamie? Uh, yeah, well, they're both really interested in theatricality. Uh, they're both, I think, if anything, sort of highlights something that's unique to Golden Age. It's this theatricality. It's this apparently easy style of writing and this apparently quite stereotyped view of the world that's actually incredibly deep. Uh, so there's a lot of that going on. Uh, between them, Marsh and Christie are very, very different writers who just happen to be writing along similar lines in a roughly similar career frame. Um, so I'd say Marsh is a lot more snobbish than Christie, and uh, Christie's a lot better at plotting than Marsh, definitely. Mm. And you can tell from this continuation novel that um, Stella uh, Duffy has read around the genre because yeah. uh, she's managed to tame some of uh, 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 Naya Marsh's uh, less skillful approaches to plot. She's managed mm. to learn some lessons from Agatha Christie and others and bring it into this quite beautiful structure that we have in Money in the Morgue. Yeah, yeah. Now, Jamie, before we let you go, I did have one final question. I understand you were a spokesperson and part of the team behind the formula that could solve any Agatha Christie novel. Could you tell us a bit about that project? <laughs> oh, God, that's going back. This is how uh, I found you, yes. yeah. Um, we analysed, uh, th- so there were three of us, and we analysed um, several of the Christie books. Uh, so we looked at word patterns, we looked at characters, we looked at themes and storylines and everything. Mm. Uh, and we found out kind of if there were trends going on. So if there's a car in the first chapter, the murder is 50% more likely to be a woman and everything. We didn't really find any anything particularly conclusive, to be honest, except that you're not very safe in a country house <laughs> within Christie land. Yeah. 
It was good fun. Yeah. I, I'm kind of interested. Do you think that you'd be able to stretch those findings to other authors, you know, based on what you saw in Christie, or would you have to go through and reverse engineer every author's catalog to achieve that sort of formulaic yeah. approach? Um, as someone who's always keen for university funding, I would say definitely lots of hard work. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. A diplomatic answer at its finest. Perfect. And we are in complete support. <laughs> Jamie, thank you very much for joining us on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. If you're interested in catching any more from Jamie, we'll have links up on the podcast for his work. We'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are covering Money in the Morgue by Stella Duffy and Nio Marsh here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. Our second book of the year. We've reached the end. I've solved it, much to my both surprise and chagrin to some extent. Let's be entirely clear. I was not expecting you to get all the details on this one. That's why I offered the bonus point. That's why we got yeah. that going on. I, I did not think you'd be able to pin down exactly who was doing what. But you did. Honestly, reading the solution, I, did, I don't think I would have been able to either. I think genuinely me being so bewildered at the last minute and then spotting Blakey, mm-hmm. like that train of thought where I was like, oh my goodness, Blakey's in the dramatis persona. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, is, why is he in there if he hasn't? It's a very yeah, silly little like, clue there. If, yeah. if that hadn't happened like on the spot as we were in the studio before we started the show last week, I don't think I would have got it in time because yeah. it was like, it was that last minute panic where suddenly just the gears were turning. Yeah, I'll let you know in that moment in the studio, I yeah. was considering pointing and being like, so the Jamais Persona, you think, like, why is Ducky Blakey on there? I was like, I, I shouldn't do that. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Congratulations, Flex. You oh. got all the points. I, no, before, I, before we get too much further, I do want to uh-huh. say, with the whole double or nothing thing, Herds, yes. I, I, it's not that we get two points or get nothing each book. Uh-huh. I think it's that we get two points and the loser at the end of the year loses all of their points, including last year's. Sounds good to me. I'm into, I'm into it. Let's go. I'm sure this will be fine for me because this is an even playing field in the studio. We are equally good. That's oh right. Then we just do triple or nothing the following year and you yeah, can yeah. catch up. That's good. That's good. I'm down for that. I'm yep. down for that. Look, that's a calculated risk on Besides, my part. you have 100% success rate so Dude, far this year. I haven't even failed yet. If I fail, if I fail next week, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm never. I'm out of the show. I'm done. I'm done. Uh-huh. That's right, though. All right. Well, yeah. I'm glad we've got that off the table. Speaking so, of money in the morgue, exactly. Before before we get into your solution, because it's crazy. Yes. And I'm very excited to it's hear not, it. It's not that crazy. I can only Whoa. see the headline in our document here. I know. Uh, the first note. Exactly. I wanted to talk a little bit about how this novel isn't fair because okay, sure. obviously there's you know we got multiple secret passages, we got multiple yep. crimes, we yep. have mafiosos, yep. we have crime syndicates, absolutely, we have definitely not Noxian or Van Dyne condoned. Yes, um, unless you count the fact that technically all the secret passages are linked. Technically, one secret passage is just very long and leads all the way to the next town over. <laughs> yeah, and and technically, yeah. the tunnels are mentioned very early in the story, though in a context that doesn't really shed much light on what yes. they actually are. Yes, this is the problem. That said, yep. I think this is an excellent case for how more modern writers were able to recontextualize the mm-hmm. Tricks of Van Dyne and Ronald Knox, as sure. we have shown many times on this show. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing mm-hmm. is to me is that when you look at the rules, I think that there is a triumph in having a story that follows the rules by the letter, but still manages to surprise and break your expectations. Sure, like that is that is one you know 
one echelon of the genre, mm. as I see it. The other is when you look at a story that breaks all the rules and is still satisfying, yes. you look at that and you see, you know, the, the, the rules of Knox and Van Dyne and Chandler, they are comparison points rather mm. than they are doctrine. Yep. You know, if you use them as doctrine and you use it effectively, that is staggering because of how restrictive they are. Yes. Um, but at the same time, even if you just about entirely ignore them, they still teach valuable lessons about how readers read your stories in this genre. Yes. I mean, let's be entirely clear, specifically with the secret passage rule, because mm. it's it's like the most prevalent one, I think. Yeah. Um, it's not as though we have not had any secret tunnels below the morgue and then right at the end they say, well, actually, there was a secret tunnel underneath the matron's house and that's how she got away. Like, we introduced the ones in the morgue and the ones uh, are like around the back um, that I believe it's uh, it's not Maurice that takes us there. It's uh, the, the other soldier gentleman. But like, th- we are thoroughly prepared mm. uh, in the same manner we, we would be prepared for body doubles or twins. Yeah. Um, in this particular story, to expect a secret tunnel in the yeah. Matrix office. The, uh, the soldier you're looking for is Brailing. That's the one, Brailing. And the one who has a lovely wife. The one who has a lovely wife, which yes. is a fantastic way Segway. to bridge us over to Yo. Uh, what I... Yeah? It, so we have in the document here, <laughs> we have the love and then a geometric shape, which I assume is meant to be a joke on the love triangle. Yeah. More or less. But it's so many sides, I cannot tell how many yeah. it is. So the, the subtitle I've got for this segment is Money in the Morgue on Love. So something uh-huh. that, I, that I noticed kind of as I was reading through was that, you know, many of the characters have relationships with each other and love triangles, and it's ultimately a red herring. And this is what I find so fascinating about this book. It's a character-focused novel, and yet all of the relationship troubles that we go through don't really have any bearing on the actual criminals. And so yeah. I went through and I literally, I went through the dramatis personae and I listed out every single character and I figured out that all of the characters who are not criminals, except for one, there's one that breaks this rule. Uh-huh. Uh, every single one is in love or has been in love, but the criminals have all are not in any loving relationships and never mentioned to me. And in fact, commit what I'm going to call crimes against love. This is getting... It's fantastic. No, it's amazing. So the Glossop, Mr. Glossop, he loves the matron. Yes. Um, Sarah Warren and Luca are a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marie Sanders uh, loves Susie Johnson. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if I want to go through all of them, but every single character who is not incriminated except for Will Kelly... Okay, so wait, hold on. You you want to just go through it? it? Porset's one of the criminals. Yep. Sidney Brown. Sidney Brown? Yeah, he commits a he commits violence against his grandfather. But doesn't who he, doesn't love. he say that he's sweet on Suki Johnson, and that's part of the whole drama? I don't recall that. I'll be entirely honest. All right, all right. I'll take your word for it because you definitely pay more attention to these things Look, than I. I don't recall that. I don't recall that. Not. I don't recall that being a significant thing of his character. Point is, Sidney Brown killed his grandfather. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The matron denies Sister Comfort her love, which is for the matron, uh-huh. and Vicar Sullivan pretends to be in love with the matron. As a ruse. Uh, All of the villains in... And and Blake, Duncan Blake, beats his sister, who he should also love. Like, all of the villain characters in some way or another... Bob Porsett, my argument for him, it's a little looser on him, but my argument for him is that the comradeship and the love that he shares with his fellow soldiers, he completely betrays on uh, multiple occasions. All of the characters that are are like the bad guys Mm -hmm. have committed some kind of uh, sin or violence against the concept of love. If you really wanted to drag this out. Mm, I will. 
if you really wanted to drag this out, I suppose you could either say that Will Kelly might have a <laughs> former lover off screen. Yes. Because, you know, he does mention he used to have a better life. Yeah. Uh, or you could argue the fact that he is so deeply in love with, love. with lemonade that he manages to ignore the spirits and take of, a dr- I thought drink. About, I thought about that, but like you could also argue using that same like line of logic that uh, the matron and the vicar love the hospital, so mm-hmm. I refuse to take that okay. as a proper argument. That's Throw that fair. out the way. Will Kelly is the only character that doesn't fit this mold. I have a question, though. Yes, what is the question? We've skipped over someone else who doesn't have a love interest. Who, who would that be? Sergeant Bix? Sergeant Bix? No, he loves Alan. He loves Alan because he loves that man with all of his heart. He how is tea for him at the end. It's how, beautiful. How is that separate from the matron and the vicar having love for the institution? Because that's for an inanimate thing. That doesn't Detectives count. Detectives are inanimate objects. No, have you read no, Murder Mystery? No, untrue. Untrue. You are you are vouching for the dehumanization <laughs> of detectives, and I will not have this, sir. My theory stands, except for Will Kelly. Will Kelly is an outlier, but every other character checks out on. All right. I challenge anybody, Affleck's and Herds, let us know if you can fight that theory. I get on that. I'm Herds. I'm a little concerned. It's with all this about theory. the love in the morgue. Is it? Yes. I want to know. Yeah. Do you think? Mm. using this method exclusively, you can solve next week's much. story. Yes. Sure, I can do that, yeah. That's very interesting, Herds. I'm glad Thank that you've you. brought this to the table. Look, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to solve everything, especially love. Well, the good news is, Herds, mm. you won't have to wait too long to solve it because, believe okay. it or not, the show will still be on next week. Nice. Uh, we are going to be covering another Nio Marsh book, as I've said. We are covering uh, a book that is known by two titles. Oh, yes. Opening Night or Night at the Vulcan. Night at the Vulcan? Yes. That's a great title. This is one of the highest acclaimed Roderick Allen novels in the series. Okay. Um, very confusing because Roderick Allen doesn't actually appear for terribly long in it. I'll let you know. Okay. Why is this so highly acclaimed? It's just a good, fun story, and it's one of those classic murder mysteries that gets to explore the joy of the arts. I see. Much like I see. Midsummer Night's the- Dream here. It's a theater thing. It Opening is. night and the Vulcan is like a theater, is it? It is. Okay, I see where this is going. Herds, well, all right. you are going to be solving, to start with, chapters one to five inclusive right. next week here on Death of the Reader. Using the power of love? Only the power of love. I'll do it. I'm in. Let's go. Let's actually let's actually lay this out now. Normally we'd lay it out next episode. Your what? first point, Herds, okay. can be for solving it. Your second point can be solving it only with love. You know what? I solved a murder mystery with the power of buddy cop films, so I think I can solve something with the power of love. <laughs> I'm doing this. <laughs> this is Death of the Reader. That has been Money in the Morgue by Stella Duffy and Nio Marsh. Be sure to check that one out. It is really a fascinating novel. We are Flex and Herds. We will see you next week with more Nio Marsh. You're listening to 2SER. <laughs>